This is Dean Schroeder, and you are listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Dean Schroeder. I'm a professor at Valparaiso University. I'm the Herbert Agnes Schultz professor, if we have to get long-winded about it. And um, I'm a strategist by training. And I am an industry refugee as well. I spent time turning around companies and starting them up, shutting them down, unfortunately, transforming them. Most recently, I've spent a lot of time writing in the area of how to tap all the creativity and ideas of your frontline people to make your company, your organization much more productive and also to enrich the lives of your people. So as as Dean is saying that, I'm sure there are people going, oh, that makes perfect sense of why he, he is on here, why he resonates with with this. If it, I really, really enjoyed the, the new book. So the, the, there's a first book from a while ago, which I was telling Dean offline that I am confident that I read. I just don't remember when and where. Um, but the ideas in it were awesome. And then this the new book is the idea-driven organization. And what's really, really cool is I got this on my desk a little bit after uh, the my book had came out come out and my book deals with this last chapter about how we are awful in organizations at recognizing that ideas come from everywhere and particularly the ideas on the front line are very valuable but as they move up this hierarchy they can get either muted out or kicked out or just ignored entirely and so that that poses this obvious question well how do we fix that and um, my book's kind of depressing because it ends with uh, we start with the realization that we have this problem and then I don't know. And what I love about this is that Alan and Dean together have sort of answered that question. Well, here's how we fix it, at least for this, the ideas that are on the front line, at least for the systems we can put into place to make sure we capture them. They've got some pretty good ideas about how do we do that. So before any of that, though, so for people who are, are not familiar with your work or mine, but somehow managed to find this podcast... The, the core thesis of, of your book is essentially that there is a, a real power to innovate that comes from the frontline employees. Tell us a little bit about why that's so powerful. I was taught the traditional myth, which is that the senior leaders know all, and so all great ideas come from them. But you say the frontline employees are, are equally, if not more important, as it comes to ideas. Absolutely, David. It, it depends upon what we're talking about in ideas. If we're ta- what we're talking about is in the ideas that can push, that can drive an organization forward. The, we're strong believers in that the strategy, the direction has to come from the top because the type of information that the leaders at the top of the organization have and the perspective they have is important for setting direction. However, the irony is that 80% of the potential for driving that goal, that vision, that strategy forward actually resides in the frontline people. The interesting thing there is when we first heard it ourselves, we didn't believe it. We thought the person that was saying it, who was a manager at a um, data Spicer Axel division plant in Missouri about uh, 13 years ago or so, mentioned that 80% of his improvement came from the front line. We thought he was being generous. Then we started thinking about it. We started looking into it and studying it. Think about it for a second, David. The folks on the front line are the ones that are talking to the customers every day. They're delivering the services. They're producing the goods. They're fighting the systems to make sure they're working right. They're finding workarounds to get them to work. And yet they're the ones that are oftentimes listened to the least because they have the least power, the least voice. And yet 
in industry after industry, everything from naval bases to health care to insurance companies to manufacturing, we have found examples where 80% of the improvement rate actually lies in frontline people. If we tap them, if we have the systems to systematically go for them. Now, these are systems that result in anywhere from 20, 30, 50, even 100 or more ideas per person implemented every year. Think about that. A company that's implementing two ideas for every one of their employees every week. And that's a company that's improving at rates that, that, that are only dreamed of by most companies. And we've been all over the world and uh, studied and uh, looked at and helped these companies. It's a lot of fun. Hmm. And I, so I think one of the most interesting things is that one of the trends we're seeing right now that's sort of brought into design thinking is the idea of ethnography and going out and watching your customers in real life, gaining insights, figuring out the sort of where the pain that they don't even know is painful is yet so that you can and iterate and make and imp make improvements and really sort of delight the customer by figuring out where the pain is. The irony to all of this, of course, is that the frontline em employees do this every single day as part of their job. It's just a matter, a matter of making sure that we do, like you said, sort of that we listen to them, that we have them plugged in, that they're considered. It's a matter of making, helping them kind of translate what they're seeing in into those ideas. And, and we'll talk about that a lot in a second because there's, there's some system tweaks that we have to do against those traditional organizations. There's a reason traditional organizations only dream of doing that, and that's because they don't have some of these systems in place. Before then, I, I actually, and I apologize, I didn't tell you this ahead of time. Before then, let's take a pause and you talk about this also requires a different perspective from the senior leadership as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's really funny. It's, you know, we're brought up in a command and control environment. You, you think about it, that's sort of uh, what we've been taught to. And that's really industrial age thinking, where we had the capital and the people on the front line had to serve the capital. They had to, the technologies of the day required people to behave in a certain way. What we've got today is very different technology. Look at what we're doing here. How big an organization do you have behind you, David? Yeah. Uh, I have a picture behind me. That's... Yeah. Exactly, exactly. We're operating out of our homes. Uh, sure, we have day jobs and are gainfully employed by large institutions, but at the same time, the real value add, the creativity, the, uh, the production of uh, the means of, of wealth today can oftentimes ha be handled by technologies that are liberation technologies. They're available to everyone. But our organizations haven't necessarily caught up to that. They're still structured in the old format. So how do you turn an organization up to, upside down and what kind of leaders does it take to be willing to, to tap all those frontline folks? One of the interesting things that we've found <clears throat> is idea-driven organizations have humble leaders. People at the top of the organization are very humble because they're the, they, they have to be to think that, hey, I don't know everybody, everything, and these guys on the front line and everywhere in our organization, my front line, by the way, I'm talking about doctors when you're talking about medicine, I'm talking about engineers and people in labs, I'm not just talking about our traditional front line uh, workers putting widgets together. We're our front lines today are professional people oftentimes, so it's a broader view of that. For example, in, in, in academe, the front line is, is the professors and the staff working with, um, with students every day. But what we find is humility is extremely important because uh, you have to be humble to listen to other people's ideas. The other thing is, let's think about it. Let's look at the leader of a, of a large company. 
First of all, they're pretty well paid. Uh, they wear the suits. They have the corner office. People defer to them. They're, it's easy for them to think and believe that, that they know better. And indeed, there's been a lot of research done on power in organizations and in other places where a lot of times people with more power have a tendency to think they're right more than they are, to consider fewer options, to think they're, they know better than, the, than people on the front lines, pe other people reporting to them. It's normal because that's how they're treated. They get it to ride around in the jets. They're treated special. And it's hard to stay humble. And yet what we're finding is the folks, the leaders of idea-driven organizations, have a level of humility in them that they understand that the big potential uh, is in frontline ideas. And you know what? Most managers, for most managers, their people can make them look awfully good if they only let them. I totally agree. And I think one of the interesting things is this is just me thinking as you're talking. I don't know if your research has found this, but do you, do you think there is potentially um, a correlation between the, the leaders who can be that humble and who can allow others to to help them um, look good as well? Do you, do you think there's a, a difference between people who are brought up throughout the organization versus the sort of corporate savior who's brought into the organization in their willingness to engage in these processes? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a number of reasons for that. You, you think about um, uh, what I hear you saying is, is sort of backdooring um, um, Jim Collins stuff on level five leaders. If you look at level five leaders, what you describe largely is level five leaders. Most level five leaders come up through the organization. They don't come in from outside. And we find a very high correlation between what we're finding and what, uh, what he found in his book, Good to Great, in terms of, of the best leaders. Very high correlation because the people that, first of all, humble people tend not to be charging in on white chargers as uh, the big turnaround CEO savior. Uh, those that you have to dig for those type of people because they're not always the first people that apply for the jobs because they are humble, but they're also the people that focus on getting the most out of their, their, their people. I don't know if you remember, David, uh, back, back quite a few years ago, there was some very interesting re research done by Fred Luthens out of the university of Nebraska. And Fred Luthens um, found that there's a difference between successful leaders those that get promoted rapidly, and effective leaders, those that do a good job running their operation. You would think they should be the same thing, but they're not. Our organizations tend to uh, promote people that are the successful leaders, and what they do is they spend more of their time politicking and managing up, whereas the effective leaders spend their time working with their people, building their unit, building the organization. They tend to be humbler. And it takes a very type, special type of organization to root those people out, to find them and make sure that they're the ones that are promoted. You know, you know it's funny, as you, as you say that, it sort of also reminds me that there's a difference between leaders who can make the stock price of a company move, uh, move upward temporarily and leaders who can actually do effective things to, to move the organization towards more profitability. You would think those two would be related, but oftentimes it's those same politicking people that end up being really good at, at giving investors confidence really bad at giving everyone else in the organization confidence. So re regardless, though, reg so regardless of homegrown versus um, sort of brought in to help the organization, there are some things that the organization can do to structure itself to be what, what you all call an idea-driven organization. W what does that look like? What are the common systems and strategies that are in place for idea-driven organizations? 
Well, there's a couple of elements involved here. And you look at these organizations and you look at their leaders. There's a couple, couple commonalities. First of all, they have very effective frontline idea systems, high, what we call high-performing idea systems. These are systems where every day they work with in an environment where their ideas are captured and decisions are made at the lowest possible level. Okay, this isn't like a suggestion box. This is the antithesis to a suggestion box. Everyone knows suggestion boxes don't work. You know the number one suggestion in suggestion boxes, don't you, David? Can we get rid of the suggestion box? That's the second one. Oh, okay. Number, number one is fire the CEO. Ah, yeah, there you go. That makes sense. But uh, but uh, these are these are systems where uh, every week folks are folks are posting. Our, one of our favorites is an idea board where you post your problems and your ideas, and then you attack them uh, on a weekly basis. And people right at the front lines, the front line teams are deciding on and implementing ninety five percent of the ideas. Certainly, some get have to go esc get escalated to higher levels for permission because they're cross-functional, or because they need a large uh, budget. Okay, so that's one level. We're built on a foundation where work every day is done with an eye towards improvement and delivering better value to customers, and it's the frontline people that are seeing that coming up, coming up with those ideas on a daily basis. Okay, that's one thing. So the daily work is different. It's focused on constantly improving. Okay. The other thing is your um, goals, you have the organization aligned for this. So for example, uh, and you as a strategy appreciate that, strategist appreciate this, it's one thing to come up with a strategy at the top of the organization, it's quite another to make sure that strategy is driven forward every day on the front lines, okay? Now, what this takes is a little more thought than usual. You know, it's one thing for the CEO to get up there and say, our goals are outstanding customer service, uh, keeping our costs low so the customers can, uh, so we're competitive in the marketplace. And uh, now, what does that translate to? Well, let's think about it. Outstanding customer service means something very different, very tangible at the front line, not just something that you wave your hands at. So what it means is it might mean um, solving, the, if, if you're in a call center, for example, it might be solving the customer's problems uh, with their first person that answers the phone. So they don't get bounced around or have to call back or, or other things. It could even be, and this is an interesting one for you, in one company I ran into that was doing a very good job known for their service, uh, what they were doing is their goal, their metric for the front line was have the number of calls for service. This is a company with a uh, net promoter score in the high 80s. These guys were good. These guys were good, known for their customer service. But their goal was to cut the number of calls they received in half. Now, why? Why? That's because what that meant is their, the, there was a software house custom software house, that meant that their training was better. That means their um, documentation was better. That meant that the software was more self-explanatory. So what they did is they took one step further back and everyone's ideas in every area then focused on very tangible things that they could do to improve those 
core drivers of the reason people call. Let's face it, David, why do people call a company? It's not to say happy birthday, you're not to say uh, we love your product. It's because they've got a question that needs to be answered. And what that means is, why do they have the question to be answered? Didn't we get it out there in front of them in an efficient manner? And it's a, it's a totally different system to put in place than just putting frequently asked questions on a website somewhere. Absolutely, absolutely. It's totally building it in. But you see, that's, that's part of that alignment with your strategic goals at the top. But down at the bottom, they've got to be stated in ways that people can act on with their ideas. Yeah. What, what I love about this, too, is that this is something the, – the beautiful thing about the ideas in, in the book, the, idea, the ideas in the idea-driven organization, kind of a fun sentence, um, is that this is something that when you're doing the strategic planning, strategic thinking, when, when you're doing this sort of constant cycle about thinking about your organization, its goals, how to align different things, you can put this into place. See, a lot of the things that I feel like happen when you talk about companies that do a great job – gathering ideas and they're highly innovative companies, et cetera, it's too easy to just go, oh, but they were like that from the beginning. They were like that mm. always. It's part of their their corporate DNA. And, and we supposedly have a different corporate DNA and therefore we can't do it, which now there, there sort of is something to uh, ideas that get started, processes that get started as a founder sticking better. But a lot of these things are systems that can be put in place after the fact, can be put in place alongside the normal strategic planning. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what uh, what happens all the time. Our favorite examples are exactly that. Companies that were struggling, uh, that, uh, that, that, that adopted these type of systems, and you could just see them take off. Now, it takes a while before, they, before it becomes part of the DNA, because old habits are hard to break. But culture doesn't happen. Culture, the culture you have is the culture you deserve. If you work at it, if you're careful about it, if you make conscious thoughts, if you want a frontline, idea-driven, customer-focused culture, you have your policies, your procedures, your practices, your rewards, all aligned for that. If you're looking for maximizing shareholder wealth in the short term, uh, focusing on, on cost-benefit analysis for quick hits, that's the culture you get. You get a very short-term culture. And uh, we get the culture we deserve. Right, we, we do. We get the culture we deserve. And truthfully, this is that question about strategy versus culture, etc. Both of them are changeable. And the beautiful thing is there's a process that we can use to change that. Some of those ideas are laid out in the idea-driven organization. It's not easy, but it's totally worth it. So if you want to figure out how to do that, check out the idea-driven organization, Unlocking the Power of Ideas from the Bottom Up. Dean, if it's okay, I'd like to switch a bit from the book to you and ask you a couple questions. Sure. What are you reading right now? Uh, what I'm doing right now is I'm rereading a couple of classics because they're tied into my coursework and I never get tired of them. One of them is Daniel Pink's Drive uh, on motivating people. It's, it's one of the best... Uh, interpretations of uh, how to moder motivate modern workers in intrinsic versus extrinsic fashion. The nice, thing about Pink, the nice thing about Pink's work is he's not a scientist, he's not an academic, but he does a great deal, uh, a great deal of work uh, pulling it all together. So it works well with my executive MBAs who are, who are um, uh, practical business people, middle managers, and it also works well with my uh, regular students. So that's one of the things I'm reading now, and I'm also going back to John Cotter's uh, Leading Change. The classics all are always worth revisiting every once in a while. 
Yeah, and, and I think, to be honest, sometimes the classics are the books that weren't visited uh, too often the first time, right? It's summarized in some other larger textbook. Therefore, that means we've read Leading Change. But no, I'm right, I'm right there with you. It's 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 both books are books worth revisiting. Uh, even even actually Leading Change, I know, has a much shorter version of it, a story with some penguins that teaches the model. Still not worth it. The actual book itself, as thick as it is, uh, is totally worth revisiting. Um, over and over again. So that that's quite awesome. It makes me wonder, though, why you're, in addition to just your management classes, why you're revisiting some of that stuff. What's next for you? What's on the horizon? Got two projects going on right now. One is extending the idea-driven organization to government. And uh, Alan and I wrote a book with a former uh, graduate student of ours who's in Sweden, book for the Swedish market. There's a lot of idiosyncratic reasons we did that. We were over there a couple months ago and fought because they were, they picked up the Swedish uh, number of government agencies over there picked up the Swedish book, including the Defense Department and the Internal Revenue Department of Sweden are using our ideas. And so we had to go over there and see how they were using it. But that's that's a minor book. Uh, the next one I personally have going is basically started out with the title stuck in the middle. Most business books sort of are written for the CEO or entrepreneur. Assume you have the power to uh, change strategy, to hire and fire, you've got the budgets. Most of us are in the middle. So what I'm doing is uh, interviewing uh, outstanding middle managers from all over the world. These are middle managers who have done, uh, accomplished amazing tasks, but are also the type of people that you want working for you, you want to be working for, or you want working with you. And finding out what it takes to excel as a middle manager in today's world. And that's a fun project that I've got going next. Yeah, I, I, especially if you're a middle manager in government, right? They lump the two together. And, and by the way, I think we would need an idea-driven government on our side of the pond in order to get some of those things uh, put in. But that means there is work to be done. There is a message that continues to spread. Um, so one best way to check out that message, check out the idea-driven organization. Dean, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Hey, everybody, it's David from the Leader Lab podcast. I just want to thank you for being a part of this community and for listening to this podcast episode. And I want to remind you that you can get even more content from us if you connect with us online. We're at Twitter, twitter.com slash LDRLB, Facebook, facebook.com slash LDRLB. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast in either iTunes or Stitcher, or just subscribe to our email newsletter, and we'll email you every single time we post a new episode. Thanks so much for being a part of the community. Look forward to giving you even more great content.